It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. So today, I want to talk about something that came up in a conversation with a group of women. And I feel very blessed to know a lot of conscious women. And that's often where I get new perspectives on health and wellness and find out about book recommendations and things like that. And I think it was at my friend's birthday party. We were a small group of women were sitting around just chatting And one of them brought up something that I hadn't heard of before, and I still haven't been able to find a lot of information on. So I don't think that you, Jason, have much knowledge about this, but I I think this is super interesting. So she calls this, and she says she learned this in a class that she was taking. There was some like Asian origin. I don't know if it was a Japanese or a Chinese mindset, but I've, I've been trying to find more people talking about it and I haven't been able to yet. So I'm actually like on a quest to, to read more about the subject matter. It's kind of like that game of telephone where oh, somebody right. says something and by the time it gets to the person at the end, it's completely different than yeah, what the thing started with. Okay. That's what I'm wondering about this. So if you, the listener, have any information about this that you can share, if you've heard this before or something similar, I'd love to hear. Okay, so the way that this woman named Sherry positions it is she calls it the five addictions in the reptilian brain that all lead back and ensure survival. So these are things that we as human beings are commonly addicted to. And I thought we could have a conversation around this. The five addictions in the reptilian brain that ensure our survival. That all lead back to and ensure a survival. Fascinating. Right? Okay. And she said that it really helps her to meditate on this and learn how she can release these addictions or reflect on how she might feel addicted to these five things. What are the five things? So... I believe that you always start each one of them with I am. So number one, I am right. Number two, I am safe. Number three, I am comfortable. Number four, I am in control. And number five, I am looking good. Wow. So I thought we could kind of dissect how those addictions play a role or don't play a role in our lives. Let's do and our it. Perspectives yeah, on no, this it. is juicy. This is good. <laughs> Isn't this good? This is really good. I know. I'm really excited to talk about this because she shared this maybe a month ago, and then I saw her again and and asked her if she could text me this information because I wasn't able to find it online. I was so interested in this that when I got home from the first conversation with her, I tried to find it and I couldn't. So again, I I, I wonder if maybe the wording is a little bit different. Or if it's just not being that discussed online, which I feel like is so rare these days, and maybe it's just 
such an old thing or an ancient thing. I don't know, but I'm really, really curious about it. But first, Jason, how would you describe the reptilian brain? I feel like you're really eloquent in explaining what that means. Well, as far as I know, you know, the ancient ancient part of our of our brain is something that has existed for, you know, a long, long time for millennia, in the sense that as the theory goes of wherever we developed from, it's all theory. I first of all want to say that in terms of evolution, right? It's a theory of evolution. Okay, no one's right about it. It's a theory. Is that there are parts of our brain that were developed to hunt, gather, protect, and propagate the species. So it's a very primitive part of our brain. And my experience with the first time I, I remember researching about the reptilian brain, actually, if I may for a second, was when I was working in the advertising industry, when I was a copywriter for some of the hugest advertising organizations on the planet. And I remember us talking about why we were describing sport utility vehicles and why sport utility vehicles were being designed in the way that they were. Hmm. And it was all of this psychological research going back to the reptilian part of the human brain that when you are higher up off the ground and you have a front grill on a vehicle that looks menacing and like an open wide mouth with fangs, which we see many vehicles like that nowadays that are very aggressively styled, it gives you the subconscious impression of dominance and therefore safety. Oh. So the way that cars are bigger now is not just for the safety equipment. The way that you see front grills and car styling being more aggressive is not happenstance. They're very much appealing to the subconscious psychology of the reptilian part of the human brain, which seeks to dominate and control and therefore feel safe. And I remember talking about this when I worked for the advertising agencies of how much the copy and the marketing was to reflect this idea of dominance mm. and why people choose to buy certain vehicles over the, over the others. Okay. And it's no coincidence that right now in 2020, when we're recording this episode, sport utility vehicles, bigger, more aggressive, larger vehicles are the ones that are selling the most right now. And I think it's all interrelated. So I know that was a long tangent about my opinion of the reptilian human brain, but I think it's concerned <laughs> with safety, dominance, control, and the propagation of the species. Yes. It's very, very primal and very subconscious motivating our behaviors, I think. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's go through each of the five addictions. Let's do it. Because I feel like we already started. That, that sounds like it was mostly around safety, right? Yeah. So, but we can go in order of the way that I listed them. So number one is I am right. And I this is right. interesting because we just finished recording an episode with our friend Paige and we talked about this, this desire to be right. So in terms of an addiction to being right, well, should we also outline how we personally define addiction? Hmm. How do you define that? It's a great question. Because I feel like that's one of those terms that gets thrown around a lot. And some people might say, like, they'll say it in passing, like, I'm addicted to social media. Maybe they actually are, or maybe they just feel like they are. Addiction could be much stronger in the sense of I'm addicted to heroin, or I'm addicted to alcohol, or I'm addicted to sex. Like, there's actual addiction textbook definitions, right? A medical definition or something versus like the colloquial is that the right mm -hmm, term mm -hmm. the colloquial definition of how we kind of throw things around like 
I'm addicted to revive kombucha, right? I don't know. I feel like addiction is a subconscious, mostly, or or conscious compulsion to do something. Mm. The compulsory is the word that comes up to me in terms of addiction. It's it's a it's almost like an automatic thing that is a compulsion to do. Mm-hmm. That's what comes up for me. Okay. Is even even in the sense of being aware of this may not be the best choice for me on a mental, emotional, physical health level, I'm still doing the thing. And so that's when I say subconscious or conscious because I think sometimes at least if I perceive times where I may or may not have been addicted to something, that's a whole nother conversation, or maybe it's related. There were times when I'm like, I know this probably isn't the best choice for me, but I'm going to do it anyway. Mm. But I think it's a compulsion. I think it's it's a compulsion to do something. And often, I think addictions can be rooted in trying to mask, avoid, or subvert pain. Mm. Okay. I'm going to avoid this pain, this suffering, and or avert it altogether by choosing an activity or consuming a thing that will distract me from the pain that I feel. Mm-hmm. To me, I feel that's a nature of addiction as well. Okay. That's a component in, in my definition. Well, I just pulled up, I typed in definition of addiction, and um, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM, defines it as a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences. People with addiction use substances or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences. It's far more eloquent than I. But actually, I mean, I felt like your definition would have been much better than mine. I I also want to give a shout out before we dive it deeper into Tommy Rosen. Yes. Who is somebody Jason and I have each known for Over many years. years. And and Tommy, actually, just a deeper shout out to him. I met him at the very beginning of my career with Eco Vegan Gal. So he holds a special place in my heart because he used to run this event in Los Angeles called the Eco Gift Fair. And that was the first event I went to as a member of the press. <laughs> As a blogger and YouTuber. It was in Santa Monica, and, wasn't it? Yeah, I remember going to it. Yep. And that was run by Tommy, and that's how I met him. He's an amazing man. He does a lot of work around addiction. So we will link to him in the show notes at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Just look for the podcast section there. You'll find the show notes for these episodes. Anything that we talk about today will be linked there. There'll also be a transcript of this episode if you want to read any of it. And so Tommy does all this work in addiction. He also does yoga. And he was just an event that Jason and I were at for New Year's Eve. And he was talking about addiction. And I just find it so interesting the way that people have overcome addiction and and their past for that, their recovery. And and I'm just amazed by people like him who teach this. So the actual, you know, medical definitions of it and those um, kind of more commonly thought of versions of addiction. But what we're going to talk about today, I think, comes back to the compulsions, mm-hmm. right? That's maybe mm-hmm. more of the the way that we're using the word addiction today. So number one, I am right. As we said earlier, we have an episode with our friend Paige and we talk in length about, you know, how we have this desire as human beings to be right and a aversion to being wrong. 
right? So I think part of what, what's interesting about these five addictions is we can look at the opposite. So right is very easy because we believe that the opposite of right is wrong mm-hmm. if we're looking at it from a black and white definition. Right. And as we were talking about that in the other episode, which we'll link to as well in the show notes if you haven't listened to it yet, it seems to me that there's a big compulsion. Compulsion? Mm-hmm. Is that the right? Is that mm-hmm. how you say it? Compulsion. Uh-huh. <laughs> Isn't it funny with some words that you say out loud and you're like, that doesn't sound right. That's one of those words for me. I feel like we, maybe all of human history has been very driven to be right. And perhaps that's because it stems back to the reptilian brain where we feel like being right is crucial to surviving. And what's interesting, though, about us in 2020 and recent years is that it seems to me that people don't recognize that they want to be right to survive. I think that our our ideas of survival are so different these days because most of us are we almost feel like we're guaranteed at least 80 years of life. Mm -hmm. As long as we don't get a major illness, as long as we don't get hit by a bus, have some freak accident, we feel like there's a very good chance that we're going to live into our 80s. Would you agree? Yeah, I do. So there's almost like this, we're in this like time of security in human history where we have so many things. And again, I'm generalizing so I'm, I'm saying we, I'm definitely referring to me and Jason. I, I believe this at least. It's like, I wake up each day. I don't really feel like my survival is being threatened. Your basic needs, if we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, your needs are met. Mm-hmm. Your basic human needs are met. Right. So then, though, therefore, though, where does the mind go? Where does the ego go when your basic needs are met and it knows it? Part of the mind, right? An unchecked, unquestioned mind is to look for problems. And where does it look for? Who disagrees with me? Mm-hmm. Who feels differently from me? Who has a different perspective that I can challenge to reinforce my idea of righteousness when it has nothing to do with our safety or our needs at all? Or survival. Nothing at right? all. It's the ego's need for survival, though. So it's no longer about a physical need or a need for safety. It's the unchecked ego, the unchecked mind feels that it needs something to exist on, to feed on. What does it feed on? Righteousness. I'm right. I knew I was right. You're wrong. I mean, it's a completely ego-based thing. It has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with physical safety or emotional safety at all. Yeah. It's really interesting because I've been reflecting a lot recently on how I was raised. And I I feel like there's so many answers about who I am. If I can look back and figure out, like, what were my parents teaching me? What were my teachers teaching me? Mm. What were my friends saying? Like, what was my environment that shaped me? And I've also, as I talked about in the episode with Paige, which we just recorded today, so it's very fresh in our mind, I talked about epigenetics. 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 Spelling be champion, eighth grade. Yes, thank That's you. <laughs> thank you. I have a tendency to mispronounce and add in, add in uh, or rearrange words when I'm saying them out loud. Thank goodness Jason is the opposite. So, which is basically about how things are passed down through our DNA. Yes. And I'll link to in the show notes this wonderful book, which I just started reading. And furthermore, not only what's passed down through our genetics, but how our lifestyle choices reinforce the expression of those genetics. Right. Yes, absolutely. And and I've been reading about this in a book called It Didn't Start With You, 
how inherited family trauma shapes who we are and how to end the cycle. That'll be in the notes at wellevator.com if you want to check that out. And I find it really interesting because to me, I think, where did I get these ideas from? So this desire to be right is something that's very ingrained in many of us. And my personal experience with that is I feel ashamed of being wrong. That's the first thing that comes up. That's strong. I'm Shame is a very I'm afraid to be emotion. wrong. I'm afraid to be told that I'm wrong. I'm, I'm afraid to be found out that I'm wrong. But I also have this conscious awareness of feeling like it's okay to be wrong. And I'm not, I don't believe, I don't walk through my life thinking that I'm right all the time. But yet there's also this conflicting information or this feeling, this belief system within me that is really afraid of people finding out that I'm wrong about things. What is that based on though? So let me, let me rephrase it. If you were found out to be wrong, that would mean what? The first word that comes to mind for me is ridicule. And I think that's partially, if not mainly, because I and you, Jason, are online. So we're, we're in the vein of a public figure, right? Because we're publicly sharing knowledge in our lives. And one thing that's felt very hurtful to me through my online career is when somebody comes to me and says that I'm wrong about something. I don't have this knee-jerk reaction in this point of my life of wanting to prove them wrong. Yeah, I'm actually very quick to admit when I say something wrong, as I have during this episode, or I'm very often feeling like, oh, well, yeah, maybe I am wrong about that. Or, oh, I didn't ever consider your, your idea about... But the thing that triggers me a lot is when people want to attack me in a, from a black and white perspective. Like, let's take vegan keto, for example. I just came out with this book called The Vegan Ketogenic Diet Cookbook. And it's based on partially on my experiences with trying out a vegan version of the low-carb, high-fat diet. And living that lifestyle. Yes, yes, I've been doing that off and on for a year and a half as of the time of this recording. And I felt really good. I've received some really positive results. And I've also read a lot of books around it. And so when it came to publishing my own book, I feel right now, because I'm in the midst of promoting this new book, I'm very afraid of people attacking me and telling me that the vegan keto diet is wrong. There's this fear in me that that I'm going to be publicly ridiculed because somebody disagrees with me. And it's not that I'm afraid of being wrong because I'm actually very open to new information. I feel like things are changing all of the time. And as human beings, we don't have all the answers. So logically, I understand that. Right. But there's this deeper fear within me, and it must have something to do with survival. There's something in me that thinks, I th- you know what it is? Maybe it's like an ostracized thing. I was just I'm about- afraid to feel like I'm going to be kicked out of the group and that I'm not going to survive because without the approval of other people, that I will not be included and thus I won't be able to make money and I won't be able to make friends and I won't get my needs met. So we lived in small, tribal, agrarian sects way longer than we've been in modern human civilization, right? Like we were in small tribal groups of humans, right? And back then, to your point, if you did something that was so much of an affront to the tribe and you were somehow cast into the wilderness, that probably meant death for you. 
Maybe, so is if, that like a betrayal thing? Like, is that what right or wrong? Like, you betrayed us because you were wrong about, or you had the wrong information, so yeah. somebody died because you told yes. them to eat these y- berries yes. that were inedible. Yes. And my point is that this ancient tribalism mindset is still alive, I think, in so many of us, in the sense that social ostracization can feel as life or death as physical ostracization from the tribe from whence we came as humans, as far as we know, And that meant if you were not under the protection and the shelter and the food and the unity of your tribe, your group, you're out to fend on your own, literally fend for yourself in the wilderness, life or death. Mm -hmm. But we still interpret a social ostracization as life or death, and it is not. So it's almost like there's a part of your brain, this ancient part of yourself that still interprets the idea of not being approved of, not understood, or socially shamed as still equating to a life or death situation. Do you find that at all for yourself? What's your relationship with with, uh, feeling right? I know you you get very triggered by this righteousness. Sometimes you get a little righteous about people that are righteous. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it seems to me like you... Like you get very offended when somebody feels righteous, if, I do. for lack of a better I, I, word. I do, and I, I think it's because, this is my opinion, the more, the more that I live and the more that I experience, the more I realize I don't know shit. And I mean that. And so I, you don't feel like being right is connected to your survival, in I other don't, words? I don't, because I just feel like the more that I live and the more information, the more life experience, the more I sit back and go like, damn, I don't know, I don't know anything. And it's not, and people go like, don't say that to yourself, you're in for it. It's like, no, it's not about that at all. It's a humility of being a human in a life experience that continues to unfold with such brilliance and complexity and questions leading to questions leading to questions and thinking, my God, for all of the experience and wisdom and quote knowledge I've gained, it makes me realize I don't know. There's so much I don't know. And so I think for me, I don't, I don't often feel the need to be right. Like I'm trying to recall, I just don't feel like that's a part of my makeup. I I feel like in terms of my relationships and communication, I'm very willing to sit back and listen to other people's perspectives. And um, even if I don't agree with them, uh, I can honor the fact that I'm not the possessor of absolute truth. I'm only the possessor of my truth and how I am viewing my reality in my life through the current information and wisdom and perspective I have now. But I know damn well it's going to change. But you don't have the fear because I can relate to what you're saying because I don't, in this moment, I wouldn't say that I feel at all attached to being right. Although maybe I do if I have this fear of being wrong, right? Because if the opposite is true, then maybe... It's two sides of the same blade. Yeah. So do you You don't have a fear of being wrong? Like you don't have any... You don't get triggered by somebody telling you that you're wrong or... Um, no, I, I have I have a fear of... of um, uh, how do I say this? My efforts not being acknowledged, but that's not the same as being right or wrong. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. if, I, if I'm like, hey, you know... No, I, I, I'm, I don't have an attachment to being right, and I don't have a fear of being wrong. Okay, great. Then yeah. check, check that one off the list. Yeah. You got that covered. Yeah. Okay. So the second addiction is I am safe, and that comes back to what you were saying about the cars, right? Exactly. Now, we could talk about physical safety, which I think you meant with those vehicles. Yep. And then we also have emotional safety. So why did you make that like whistling sound with because, that word safe? Because that's, that was a big thing that came up for me this past year in 2019 was this idea that 
if I understand what's happening and I'm in control of a situation, then I'll feel safe. And so many situations in 2019, so many, my financial situation the first six months of the year, a relationship that dissolved, my ayahuasca experience, a lot of personal things that happened were, I feel a theme was continually showing me, you don't have control. You also don't know what's going on right now or why it's happening. And can you still feel safe in the midst of this chaos? Well, there's clearly a lot of crossover because the fourth addiction is being in control. So do you feel like there's, if you were to remove the the desire to be in control Mm -hmm. from safety, is there other elements of safety for you that come up that have nothing to do with control? Well, I mean, understanding a situation or understanding what is happening in my life is a part of safety. But that's also very, very much bleeds into control because I feel like if I have a grasp on what's happening and I can name it and understand, you know, for example, why am I not making money the first six months of this year? Why am I, you know, why am I so much in debt? Blah, blah, blah. Why, why did this relationship not work out when I did my best? Why? Part of the understanding of things is, again, it's to me, it's the other side of the sword of if I understand something. I have some measure of cognitive control over it through that understanding, and therefore I'll feel safe. So understanding something and mm. being able to label it and or put and, a name on it or understand way, the causality of why it happened. But isn't understanding kind of tied back into right a little bit? Like, because having the right information, the right understanding of something? Yeah, I mean, when you positioned it as, as I am right, I took it as more of a, um, an ethical positioning of right versus wrong. But the way you're phrasing it of like, if I have the right information, the way you're saying it is not necessarily correct. correct. It's yeah, it's not an ethical position. It's more like, do I have all of the variables and information to correctly deduce what the hell is happening right Mm -hmm. now? And I've realized that like, there's a lot of life that we just don't have answers for a lot of life. It's interesting. Especially why, because I know that's one of your favorite questions, but there's a lot of situations we will not get the answer to. Oh, man. And that's tough for me. I think, and why I think must be tied into safety for me. I feel safe when I have the information, like you. It's like, if I have the information, I'm safe. And that's similar to the right element, too. And and we're thinking about like the tribal mentality. You know, if I, if I know, and this comes back to being in control. So these, these kind of all bleed together, which is interesting. If I know where the bears live in the forest, yes, then I can predict when My and safety. where the bears may come from and then be able to stay alive. Right. Yes. And then it's primal. Yeah. Primal, primal survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting too, because safety has come up for me in relationships and I noticed a pattern for me and actually <laughs> this comes up for me also with my sleep. So I one of my biggest health challenges is sleepwalking and sleep talking. And I've had a tendency to sleepwalk and sleep talk for off and on throughout my life, but it seemed to get worse in my 20s and I've been really trying to identify it. I haven't done a sleep study yet, so I know there's a lot more information to be collected, but for me, I've been trying to understand it or collect information from from like a mental and emotional side. And I haven't really been able to pinpoint why I sleepwalk and sleep talk. But one clue for me is that I usually say things or do things when I'm sleepwalking that have to do with me not feeling safe. Interesting. It's like an ongoing thing when I sleepwalk is I'm afraid somebody's in the home and I like the other night I did it and I thought somebody had entered into my home 
And so I had to put away my computer so they wouldn't steal it. Did you actually put away your computer? Oh, yeah. I walked downstairs and put the computer away. You, you, wait, you walked down <laughs> a giant flight of stairs yeah. while sleepwalking. Oh, yeah. Aren't you afraid that you are... No. You're going to like fall and break your neck? Nope. It hasn't happened yet. Except for that one time I had that really weird... I had a dream. When my worst and most recent... One of the most recent and the, the most extreme case of sleepwalking that I've had where I actually got hurt... I must have told you this, Jason. Yeah, no, I saw the video. I wo- <laughs> you took a I video woke, of it. I woke up. My dream basically was that there were like a pack of wolves or dogs chasing me and I literally ran away from them. So I was dreaming that and physically I started running away from them. I jumped out of bed and ran away. It was so bizarre and I actually like hit my head and my arm and it was, yeah, that was the most. But again, that comes back to safety in that moment. I was so afraid that physically I was responding to not feeling safe. Yeah. So there is a big thread through for me and somehow I have um, issues with that safety wise. And I, that's actually part of the reason I'm really curious about, how do you pronounce it again? Epi- Epigenetics. Epa. Uh-huh. Like Epa? Epigenetics. Epigenetics. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> trying, to, trying to get it right, Jason. I'm very curious about that because one, the person that turned me on to that book I mentioned earlier is our friend Ari. And she said, what if your fears of safety have to do with like your grandparents feeling unsafe and maybe they pass that down through their DNA. And so you might feel safe right now in your life, but what if your DNA is programmed to not feel safe? Right. That's pretty Fascinating. deep. Fascinating. <laughs> no, okay. it's, 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 wow. There's a lot. I mean, yeah. I think we could blow that one I know, wide we really open. could. <laughs> We're going to try to make this one more concise. So we've got right, safe. We've talked about being in control a bit. The other two are comfortable, which is great because we're all about getting uncomfortable. So that's the third one. I am comfortable. To me, that doesn't, that doesn't like trigger me mentally as much. Like, but I think it is does play a role in all of our lives. I mean, we're used to being comfortable and we we buy things to be comfortable. We do things, we say things to be comfortable. I think it's different for Jason and I because our whole podcast right now is so based on getting uncomfortable. It's like we've we've become comfortable with being uncomfortable. But there's also that that line though of I feel as you become conditioned to be comfortable with formerly uncomfortable things. Then to me, I'm always looking for where where's my edge? What areas of life can I look at or immerse myself in or discuss that I'm like, ooh, wow, that's causing a really interesting emotional reaction. So for me, like via this podcast and having conversations with the two of us and our guests, I'm always interested in like what are people, what are some areas we're not talking about? What are some things that we might feel shameful, guilty, scared of, misunderstanding that we can crack open and discuss? Do you think, though, that your desire to be uncomfortable is comforting? I think that there's a part of me. Like, in other words, are you, is like maybe your reptilian brain thinking, well, if I can get used to being uncomfortable, then I'll always be comfortable and thus I'll be safe and I'll survive. Hmm. That's fascinating. I never considered that. (laughs) I never considered that. Hmm. I don't know. I'm just kind of reviewing my life. And even as a child, I think I was always drawn to uh, the dark, scary corners of places, if you will. 
And to me, the darkest, scariest corners are the ones in our own mind. You know, I think in our literature and Did our, you know that as a kid? Were you aware of that? I mean, I, if I look back on the folklore and the myths and the tales and everything that I read as a kid, yeah, I mean, I read Peter Rabbit and Sesame Street and all that stuff. <laughs> you read Sesame Street? Or, I'm sorry, watched Sesame Street, rather. <laughs> but I also was drawn to, I don't know, quote, dark things, creepy things, mysteries, you love Darth shadows, Vader. you know, monsters. I, I mean, I was kind of obsessed with in particular mythology of, of monsters and demons and devils and all of these things. And if I think about it, my opinion is that these monsters and these creatures and these dragons and demons and vampires and werewolves and all these things are aspects of the human psyche that we have put into our folklore and mythology to try and explain why we do things that we do. The monsters are us. The demons are us. The vampires are us. And, and so to me, it's always been this, this question of if I can examine what's in the darkness or under the bed or in the scary closet, yeah, it scares the shit out of me. But ultimately, like whatever I'm going to meet in there, much like you mentioned Star Wars, that scene in Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> when Luke Skywalker is in the cave on Dagobah, Yoda tells him to go in there. He sees the, the ghost of Darth Vader. He cuts off Darth Vader's head and the mask falls off and it's Luke's face. So the mythology of the Joseph Campbell system of analyzing myths and, and seeing how relevant they are to our human experience, I firmly believe the Darth Vader's and the monsters and the demons and that although they're us. Yeah, they're but us. coming back to the question of do you feel the need to be comfortable in order to survive? Perhaps that is part of it. Perhaps it's like, hey, if I learn to be a person who faces the monsters and faces the demons and the devils and realize they're just me, then I'm like, ha, huh, you can't kill me, monster, demon, devil, vampire, because you're me. Mm. And so maybe there is a control and safety mechanism of if I practice, you know, slaying the dragons or putting a stake in the vampire's heart, then I'll be the all-conquering hero. Mm -hmm. And maybe there is a part of me based on the mythology I was obsessed as a child with that the demons and monsters and darkness of my own heart and my own psyche, if I can conquer those monsters, then I'll be free. Then I'll be the hero of my life. Yeah, I think I can relate to that too because I, I like to challenge myself to get uncomfortable because that feels like if I can be comfortable despite being uncomfortable, if or maybe if I can banish the idea of being uncomfortable, right? Mm. Because if if everything feels comfortable, then maybe you don't experience discomfort or like if you can feel uncomfortable and immediately transform it into comfort or something like that. Like, I mean, we could, we could go so deep in it. I think of physical pain a lot. Like, okay, one thing I would love to do in my life is, is to master physical pain. You know, like I get so frustrated when I'm in yoga and I'm experiencing pain and it makes me want to move out of a pose and I'll, I'll kind of like judge myself. I'm like, you need to learn how to suck it up and feel the pain, no pain, no gain. You know, like there's a side of me that wants to just learn how to be okay with the pain because, or which is basically discomfort. Because if I can be uncomfortable in an, if I can be comfortable in an uncomfortable situation, then I can grow more and I can achieve more. Right. And maybe that's very tied into survival. All right. We, we just have a little bit more time. So let's just talk about the very last one, which was looking good. Oh boy. <laughs> This, this could be a really horror. deep one. We talk about this with Paige too. It's so funny. I feel like the episode with Paige, which again will be in the show notes at wellevator.com, 
we really dug into a lot of this, not even purposefully. Yeah. <laughs> it just yeah. kind of came up. And I think this is a thread through throughout the podcast. So if you like this episode, I'm speaking to the listener here. If, you, if you're enjoying this, you'll probably enjoy most of the episodes because all of these topics come up. So let's see if we can just briefly touch upon the desire, the addiction to looking good. And I'll start. For me, I'm actually working on not being addicted to looking good. This is a a thing I'm actively practicing in my life right now because I grew up feeling like I had to look good in order to survive, meaning to be accepted. And I think this is so prevalent. It probably has always been prevalent in our history, but I think it's especially prevalent with social media where we're displaying ourselves and we're trying to get approval from other people and validation and all of that. And we feel like if we look good, whatever that means to us, then we will get the approval of other people and we'll have our goals met. So people use looking good to make money. It's huge, huge money Massive. maker, right? Of course. One of the oldest and most common ways to make money is is a, to base it on your appearance. Well, and to, right? in many, many cases, adhere to the beauty standards of the given society of which you live. Right. Let's be more specific and the t- about and it. And the time frame that yeah, we're in. Exactly. Right? Whatever those beauty standards are, if you affix to those beauty standards and you promote yourself well, you will probably do well. Yeah. But the problem with that is beauty standards are always changing. Yep. And we're always changing as human beings. And I think at this point in my life, I don't want somebody to base my value on how I look at any given day because my weight fluctuates and my face changes based on how much sleep I got or am I inflamed? What I what did I eat? If I'm wearing makeup or not, if I'm hydrated, does my face look dry or moisturized? You know, what am I applying on my skin? What does my hair look like? Did I wash my hair? Did I style my hair? I mean, you could go on and on, especially as a woman. But I know men go through this too. There are so many ways that we feel like we have to adjust ourselves to please other people. And I'm at this stage where I don't want that to be attached to my survival. I would rather people think that I'm unattractive then feel like they value me simply because they find me attractive. Yeah. And actually, we don't have much control over that too because beauty is in, is in the eye of the beholder. It's just that, as Jason said, we have all these beauty standards. So a lot of us feel like we have to look a certain way based on what other people say is good looking and whatever. And to me, that just feels so, so superficial. And I don't want anything. I want as little to do with that as possible. But I will say deep down... I feel a bit controlled and addicted to this idea of looking good. I think it's right? interesting because when you say looking good, not only does physical appearance come up, but other materialistic or materially focused factors come up when you say that to me. And I think in, your car, your I was clothes, about to say, I mean, and for, for me, for me, if I may, like if we talk about the standards of Let's just talk about standards of desirability. Let's shift from beauty to standards of desirability. Like what makes you desirable as a human in society? For me, if I decode the pressures that I have consistently felt that are completely societally driven, that I've bought into to one degree or another throughout my adult life, it was to demonstrate that you look good. There are markers of success in looking good, right? Like, you drive a really nice car. Got me a Tesla, brand new Mercedes S-Class, 
got a Lotus, got my Ferrari. You know, I'm car, I'm car obsessed guy. But part of that is a very hierarchical, classist thing of he must be doing well and he must have an awesome life because look at the car he drives, look at the watch he has, look at the shoes he wears, look at his style. Dude, that is a badass dude. I want to be like him. It's reinforcing a societal hierarchy, which goes back to in my mind, and I've decoded this for myself of why I felt so much pressure. If I have the nice car and the nice watch and the shoes and the style and the swagger, and you're I will, in shape and your hair looks good. I have a six pack yeah. abs. I'm muscular. I'm fucking. He must be the kind of guy I want to marry. He's a desirable a male. With. He's a desirable male. So by me appearing to be on the top of the food chain of the societal hierarchy of males, I am therefore more desirable as a mate, and then I won't experience abandonment. I'll have a companion. I'll be loved. I'll be approved of. And then ultimately, on the most primal level, I will continue to propagate the species with my DNA. So a lot of our materialism from looking good physically, our entire beauty industry, if I may, I'm, I'm just going to say, like so much of our consumer culture is based on this hierarchical enforcement of societal desirability. If I have these things and this much money in my account and look this way and my boobs are this big and I have these right shoes and have the right car, I will be loved and desired. That's all it comes down to. I mean, other than the basic needs of food, housing, shelter, clothing, like, like, why do we need all this extra crap? There's so much crap that has been created that is predicated on making you more desirable and looking good so you can be loved and all the things I just said. Right. There's so much of our industry that is driven by that. That's why these are addictions, though. I mean, and I think that's why this is such an interesting thing to reflect on. So we challenge you, the listener, to reflect on how these play a role in your life or how they don't play a, lo- yeah. a role. Yeah. And we could talk about the subject matter for a long time because it's, there are many layers. And I'll, I'm sure I'll be thinking about this a lot. As uh, my friend Sherry mentioned when she told me about this, she uses this in her meditations and she really reflects on each of these things. So again, the five addictions, according to Dear Sherry, are I am right I am safe, I am comfortable, I am in control, I am looking good. So we encourage you to reflect on this, have discussions around it, conversations with your family, your friends, your loved ones, your clients, your children, anybody in your life. It's a really interesting conversation as we are unraveling all of these different elements of ourselves, examining ourselves and trying to get to the root of who we are and why we are, how we are, all of these different things, as Jason coughs a little bit. I, <laughs> I couldn't hold it anymore. <coughs> well, thank you for joining us for this episode. Thank you, Jason, for discussing it with me. You look physically uncomfortable right now. That's because I feel like I have something stuck in my throat and it can't get out. (laughs) You look physically uncomfortable. Discomfort is what I just, I want to say discomfortable. Discomfortable. You look physically (laughs) discomfortable. What if that was the name of this podcast? This might get discomfortable. That would have made a lot of people uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a real word. (laughs) And then they would have been attached to being right, wouldn't they? Well, thanks again, Jason. Thank you to the listener. Again, you can learn more about this. You can read the transcript. You can check out our resources. 
at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. You can continue to listen to the episodes. Again, we highly recommend listening to the one with Paige, listening to whichever ones pique your curiosity, whichever ones, whichever episodes pique your curiosity. And uh, we really appreciate having you here. We'd love your feedback. We'd love to hear from you in the form of, of a review on iTunes. There's instructions on how to leave review how to leave a review. I'm having trouble speaking right now. Um, all of those tips and tricks are at wellevator.com and in the podcast section of our website. And you can leave comments on our website if you'd like. There's a lot of different ways to get in touch with us via email, through social media, through our courses. We have lots of different programs designed to support you with your well-being and help you explore the depths of who you are and feel your best each and every day. That's our mission here. And uh, we're looking forward to doing the next episode, whatever it may be. Thanks. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.